2016, Auto saved taxpayers 256 million rand when we exposed and stopped an unlawful deal between South African Airways and BNP Capital, a virtually unknown company headed up by Daniel Mishlangu. BNP Capital was about to charge SA Airways 256 million rand for securing a loan of 15 billion rand on behalf of SA Airways. We also laid criminal charges against Daniel Mashlangu, but we couldn't have done any of this without the help of Cynthia Stimple, then treasurer at SA Airways. Cynthia tried in vain to stop her superiors at SA Airways as well as National Treasury from closing the deal. In the end, she blew the whistle to Outer, but for this, she lost her job. Here is Cynthia Stimple to tell part of her story. Cynthia, it's maybe unfair of me to introduce you as a whistleblower because you're much more than that. Please tell us about Cynthia Stimple. Who are you? And how did you end up in the position you found yourself in? Thank you, Elson. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. So, yes, I am Cynthia Stimple. I am definitely more than a whistleblower. And um, the whistleblowing doesn't define me. I am a mother of two children. I'm also a grandmother. And so I play various roles. Grandmother, mother, wife, sister, friend, um, my career has been primarily in banking. I started um, working in a branch and moved up to merchant banking, commercial banking, and uh, last couple of years were in treasury environment, um, DBSA in a, a risk management role and um, funding role, and then at SAA as the financial risk manager for roughly eight years and the last two years as the group treasurer. So that basically is the roundup from my career. I do, my highest qualification is an MBA. I'm also very active in our church. I taught catechism. I was involved in our um, parish council committee meetings. I'm involved in our local community, especially last year regarding COVID. I assisted a lot with providing food to people and the poor, even baking bread on a daily basis and providing fresh bread, which I found was very helpful. So, um, yes, um, I just see myself as more than that. I'm also a yoga teacher, by the way. And for the COVID, I also undertook to write my book. So I think once it's launched, I can then call myself an author. And I'm sure that it will open a lot more eyes to the hell you've been put through because you are an honest, loyal South African. So I want to bring you back to that unfortunate time in 2016 when everything just went haywire at SA Airways. Uh, although that's also an understatement, things started going wrong way before July 2016. But in July 2016, Ata became aware of a deal between SA Airways and a company called BNP Capital, headed by a guy called Daniel Mashlongu. And we decided this cannot happen because it's it just sounded absolutely crazy to charge 256 million rand to secure funding for SA Airways. And 
As a layperson, I never understood why a company like SA Airways needed a middleman to go and approach a bank for funding. And that's where you come into the picture because you approached ATA to expose wrong things at SA Airways, starting with the information you brought to us. Please tell us about the goings-on at SA Airways in July 2016 and what made you decide that this cannot happen. Thanks, Ilsa. So my role at the last two years was the first year was as acting group treasurer. And the second year, I got the job as full-time group treasurer, no longer acting. But during those last two years, prior to that, SA first borrowed money in 2007. The money was borrowed on the back of a guarantee from National Treasury. And subsequent years, the same Thing happened that every time SA needed money, they needed to borrow it on the back of a guarantee. So by the time we got to 2015, SA had already government guarantees of roughly 14 billion, almost 15 billion. So we rounded it around 15 billion. And we've been borrowing various loans from various banks at various tenures, normally only one year, one and a half years. Um, and so this was becoming very expensive. SA. And one of my roles was that I would um, look at a way of, of, of trying to save costs for, for SA. In fact, every single manager and person at SA was tasked to save funds. So the, only, the way I looked at it, that if we took a longer term debt, we capitalized all the debt. So instead of having one billion year, one and a half billion year, two billion there for short term, we combined it. We took one big loan, consolidated our debt. We took a longer term, five to 10 years. We I first looked at three, five, seven, and 10. Those were the 10 years. And then looked at the interest rate. Giving a ballpark figure, the savings for SA would have been three to 400 million, depending on the rate we got from the banks. And at that time, SA was paying at least 1.2 million in interest paid only. So this, this we did in a borrowing plan. It was approved by executive board and national treasury at the time. Then when we went out um, on tender for it, the first thing that happened was that our board canceled everything else. The, they didn't approve any of our recommendations. However, they brought in a client called FTC. This client didn't even come through the procurement process. And that's when I first, my first um, warning bells rang and thinking, why would board know that this is going against uh, our policies and our procedures and the procurement SEM policy, which is the supply chain policy? Why would they do that? So anyway, we agreed to send the client together with our risk management committee, send the client the RFP and send it to them. What subsequently happened after that, we heard nothing from our CFO, and she then decided to work with our procurement department to get a transaction advisor. And with the transaction advisor, when they won the tender, which was BNP Capital, the, the, the mandate was to look at our loan book, to look and optimize our balance sheet, to look at restructuring the balance sheet and to look at our loans and leases of the aircraft unit. So that was the overall, it was never to source funds. Why bring in somebody like that to do a job like that? Wasn't there enough expertise in the organization? I mean, you were there, there was a supposedly well-qualified chief financial officer because you can't become a CFO of an entity like SA Airways and don't know what you're doing. That's my one question. But my second question is, 
why did the board go against a treasury approved plan exactly and this is this is where our challenges came so the first one is uh, why do why bring in someone when you have the expertise in treasury our job as treasury since i started there i started at the end of 2006 so 2007 was when we first borrowed money it was all done in the treasury department not in the procurement space if you go to any treasury in the whole country they do the management of any funding cash management that's where the control is and for this to happen we suddenly you get a transaction advisor in and get the transaction advisor to source funds is not what normally happens the other question you asked was when you have a cfo a chief financial officer that is their role which is exactly that the previous boss i worked with was wolf mayer he was quite involved with treasury on the funding but from a treasury perspective the acting cfo then after wolf mayer resigned was brought in by our then chairperson dudu mayeni and she came in and at the start already i i sat with her i explained the the financial risk management policies how we work with treasury in there's a chapter that pertains only to funding she still went the route of procurement and spoke to the chief procurement officer there he was also acting the previous procurement officer was suspended and subsequently fired because he challenged things against mayeni and you may know him dr masimbadawa both may resigned in november 2015 and dudu mayeni brought in ms pomeza nahansi as the acting or interim chief financial officer when she came in she immediately focused on working directly with the procurement um, head who at the time was Lester Peters and our previous procurement head was Dr Masimba Dawa and he was suspended and subsequently dismissed the following year because he resisted changing um contracts which Dudumayeni and Yaki Kunane wanted him to do i was unaware of that at the time so ms pumeza nahansi came in when she came in there was a meeting a board meeting on the 3rd of december which she attended normally i would have attended and presented our funding um uh, submission and she told me i must be on standby she'll call me when she needed me when the following week the, the board resolution stated that they turned down our recommendations we recommended to banks that together with the amounts those banks gave us it would roughly be about 3.5 billion which is obviously not the full amount but it was additional new money and we recommended the rest of the debt would then be rolled over so that was the plan Cynthia may I just stop you here I want to know from you is it normal practice to go with anybody mm-hmm. else other than a bank our policies stated that we work with the bank so it is in the policies secondly we had a credit rating policy whereby all our clients we dealt with had to be credit rated and they were all banks SAA which is an international company dealing with clients at, on every continent each of no matter how small those banks were we still had to credit rate them and so those are the banks we had to deal with from a funding perspective we dealt with the the clients the big banks that were based in south africa so that was in our policy and we only went to them the challenge we faced was that board said that we as treasury 
did not want to give BE companies a role in the funding, yet every bank has its BEE status. Um, they required by law to do that. And they all had very good scheduled BE statuses. So what transpired then, they found a way to go through the back door. And that's where our acting CFO came in. She went via the, the acting procurement officer. They requested that we have a transaction advisor, an RFP went, uh, RFI first went out, then an RFP, and they chose the client BNP Capital. BNP Capital won on two accounts that the price was the lowest at 2.68 million. Other clients like Nedbank and Deloitte had also applied, even regiments applied. But at that time, BNP Capital won because their BE status was a black-owned organization, and two, that their price was the lowest at um, 2.68 million, so just under 3 million. Their mandate was to look at our loans, as I said previously, look at the leases, restructure our balance sheet, um, look at the, uh, the leases on the aircraft, and just see what recommendations they could make to ESA. Were they going to get paid just under 3 million for that work? Correct. Just for that work alone, which is okay. work we do so it's work okay. that our treasury department does. Even the leases, there's a fleet department. They look at the leases and on a regular basis give a list to Exco and board where our leases are, what we're paying, et cetera, for it. So it's um, in any the, case, it's duplication of work again at an uh, inflated exactly. fee just to give a job to a buddy. Yes, Exactly. And um, even the accounting division, the finance, they call the financial accounting division, they look at the restructuring of the balance sheet and they make recommendations on an annual basis because they work together with the external auditors and the internal auditors. And they look at it, obviously, because we need to know uh, what our debt rate versus our equity in the organization. And that's their job. And so now to get an outside company in to do this, which I challenged right from the start already, in the end, because I was away, one of my team members who acted in my place approved it when I came back. It was just a matter of this has to go through. So BNP was chosen. For me, I thought, okay, um, as much as I'm resisting it, a second opinion is not too bad. Maybe a board will see that we are doing the right thing. However, BNP Capital is chosen in March 2016. Come April, we, that's myself, my colleague, Michael Klein, and um, in Treasury, together with the rest of the risk management team, which is the head of finance, the head of legal, the head of enterprise-wide uh, risk, all get together and the chief risk officer, we, we call the meeting with the acting CFO and saying what's happening with the funding because at the moment we're only rolling over funds and we need to finalize the funding because we had left it with her with the FTC. She says, leave it with me, give me one week. She was going to speak to board to see if they could change the scope of the BNP capital to sourcing of funds. We all reacted in the meeting. We all said, no, this cannot be. We have to go out on a new RFP. We have to go on a new tender. She just said, leave it with me. She'll discuss with board. She discusses with board. We don't hear anything until the 6th of March. It's when I get called in to sign a document. The document states that um, it, this document was already prepared by procurement. 
and it's now going to the Bid Adjudication Committee. The Bid Adjudication Committee looks at overall procurement type tender transactions, and they give the final approval for that. And then it goes to board. And here they're requesting to the Bid Adjudication Committee that we change the scope of BNP Capital to source funds for SAA 15 billion at a fee of 3% at the time. Now, the calculation makes it 300 million. You were looking to borrow how much? Oh, 15 billion. And this is what I told Pumez. I said, look, my goal and task is to save 300 million for SAA. And now you asking me to sign this document and wipe out that saving. I said, I'm not prepared to do it. And I pushed it back to her. And I said, the banks can do this at a fraction of the cost. I said, they don't even charge 1%. They charge a point. 50.75.8%, which is called basis points. She then said to me, well, she didn't think of it in that way. Um, can we meet next week? And the following week, I was going to go away. So I said to her, I won't be here. I've put, um, and she said, well, you didn't ask my permission. And I said, well, I did put my leave form because we have to put our leave forms online. And she hadn't yet signed it or approved it. And I said, it is there. And I sent an email. Thank goodness I did that. I sent an email stating to her that I'll be taking leave um, um, for this week. I'll be back the following week. I... I went back to my deputy because as you, when you leave the office, you always have to have someone to act in your place. And I had Michael Klein to act in my place. I said to him, please do not sign anything in my absence. This is what's going to happen. They want us to change the scope of BNP Capital for them to source funding. I said that the fee is ridiculous and I don't um, want us to sign anything. He agreed the fee was ridiculous. He also promised me that he wouldn't sign anything. I go away and leave. By Wednesday, he sends me a WhatsApp message saying that he was forced to sign it. So I wrote back and I said, how you mean forced? I am so disappointed. And he said, well, he was told by the procurement officer that he doesn't make the decisions around this. It's the board that makes the decisions. So needless to say, I was extremely disappointed. I was actually walking a pilgrimage at that time, hence the reason I took the leave. And it was a gift from my husband, so I couldn't just cancel it. I asked the, our group lead if I could just take a 30-minute break, which we did at a coffee shop. And I sat down to write a whistleblowing message to National Treasury. That's when I made the decision, you know what? They've gone ahead with the FTC. We've heard nothing. I don't know what's happening. They've gone ahead getting this BNP capital who was only supposed to review uh, what we're doing and make recommendations. Now, suddenly, the same client is going to be sourcing funds, and, and this is literally stealing money. And so I immediately wrote to National Treasury because I thought, who else do I go to? They are next. We have our own hierarchy, and we reported to National Treasury they would be the best. So I immediately sent a, a WhatsApp message and stated this this is a whistleblowing message. And I stated the reasons and I stated the data. And I said, upon my return, I will provide all the evidence. The next couple of days were very disconcerting for me because I was now worried what's happening back at the office. When I got back, my deputy, Michael Klein, had all the information. I said, I want the, the BAC submission. I want um, what the minutes were, everything. He had everything on my desk. And I again told him that I was very disappointed that he, he could go ahead without me um, giving him approval. And despite me saying, don't sign it, 
he said, well, um, he signed because, and he again reiterated that the acting CPO, who was Lester Peters, the chief procurement officer, told him that he doesn't make the decisions. And he said the guy was sort of jumping up and down. Anyway, um, I then tried to set up a meeting with the interim chief financial officer, Pumez Nahanti. I wrote her by email saying, please, we have to meet. Um, I don't think this deal should go ahead. We need to put the RFP out completely again to everyone, but we should not be doing this. She doesn't respond. Um, the next day I write again to her and I said to her, it is unethical of us. And I included myself because I saw us as a team for us to go ahead with this deal. We cannot. I said, we should at least get um, prices from the banks or put the RFP out to everyone and then do a new assessment. Instead, she writes back to me and says, are you calling the board unethical? Then we will have a meeting. So I said, I would love a meeting. Please let us meet. So she said, contact my secretary, which I do. The secretary only gives me a date on the 31st of May that year. I get the date and I'm thinking, okay, board, there's a board meeting on the 26th and 27th of May. Maybe Pomeza will hold this deal back because why did she make the meeting for the 31st? That come the 25th, the day before the board meeting, I actually call the company secretary's office to ask them when is the funding on the agenda because I would like to attend so I can present um, and, and give my point of view from a treasure perspective. And she tells me, no, it's not on the agenda. So I said, no, it should be on the agenda. And she said, no, it was already approved. I said, how could it be approved? She said it went via round robin. So this deal went against all our normal processes. If something as big as 15 billion should go through a formal sitting board, especially if the board was sitting, and they were going to sit on the 26th and 27th of May. Yet this went already on the 24th of May via round robin, via email, to get the approval. The board members were very few at the time. They were Dudu Mayeni as chairperson. There were Yake Quinane, who was also head of, of, of the Audit and Risk Committee. Then there was Dr. John Tamby. The other two were the, they were the non-executive directors. The two executive directors was Ms. Pumenzi, the chief financial officer and the acting CEO was Musa Twani. They all signed this with no questions, with no one coming. All my years working at SAA, they always needed a treasury person to come and present or give guidance on what's happening. This time it was designed and through procurement and decision was made. Obviously, by then, when I got that, I realized, okay, I now need to put that evidence as quickly as possible and get it over to National Treasury, which I did. I put it together. I sent it to National Treasury. I spoke in first, in, I looked at the internal whistleblowing policy and thought, what do I do here? I contacted an executive manager at SA of strategy, spoke to him. He told me, don't use the internal hotline because it goes directly to the board and board will suspend me immediately. Um, we then called the head of audit then and spoke to him. And he said, look, they're still revising the internal whistleblowing policy. This particular executive advised me to go to um, National Treasury. I said, well, that's where I've already um, targeting my, my letter and my evidence. So I completed that and I'd sent it to them. I also sent an email. I tried to get hold 
of the public protector and it was quite difficult. So I thought, let me go online and then write an email, which I did. And I said, I have evidence. Who do I speak to and who do I give it to? I didn't get any response from that. Then I called another executive manager, Tulim She, which um, I think also had um, dealings with Alta. She was also suspended at the time, just a few months before I was suspended. And she told me Alta is looking at state-owned organizations with this tax abuse. And she gave me Wayne Duvenage number. I then sent him a text message just saying, I'm Cynthia Stimple. I have this evidence. It's concerning me. And um, I find, and I gave him a, a brief outline of what's happening with the BNP deal, and that SA would stand to lose almost um, at the time it was 256 million because they reduced the interest rate to one and a half percent. Plus, if you add the VAT, because you have to pay the VAT over as well because it's a service, it came to 256 million. I sent it to them. The Sunday evening, Wayne actually sent me a message and said, can we meet the following Friday? Because this was still in June. We met Friday the 1st of July. I gave him all the evidence. I'd saved it all on a flash disk and gave him the full rundown of the story. He said they'll get back to me. They got back to me on the 4th of July, which was the Monday, and then stated to me that there's definitely, in, this is in the public interest, they would definitely take on the case. They were also very concerned. My question was, can we stop this deal from happening? Because if this is paid, we won't get the money. And he said, well, we will work with lawyers for this. He also wanted to know if I if I knew anything about BNP Capital. And I said, well, I know nothing about it then, because they were handled in... Um, by the procurement department. And I said, but I'll go to procurement and ask them for data on that. I went back to the guy's name was um, Silas Matsoutsa and kept going to him because he was our uh, commodity manager. And he just, every day, every time I went that day on Monday, he wasn't at the office. As I left the office late afternoon, I found all the files lying on the floor. There was regiments, Nedbank, BNP Capital, some other clients there. And I'm thinking, why is he leaving this on the floor? So I took the BNP Capital, I went to read it, and I realized there's some stuff in here that shows that this client hasn't even got the capacity to deal with the 15 billion. So I photocopied everything and scanned it to myself, and I went back to the offices to return the file, and the offices had closed. When I, the next morning, I thought I'll give it back to him. The, the way I saw it, that we have a, a clause in our procurement policy, the SM policy, that while the bid is still being decided on, no one outside the bid can touch the documents or review it. But once it's already agreed and assigned, obviously you can have access to the documents. And I felt as a treasurer, I should have access to the documents, A, B, that I was also going to be working with these clients I needed to know who I was dealing with. So for me, it was that I am doing the right thing. I returned the files. I went back, back to his office. I said, Silas, you weren't here. I saw these files on the floor. I took them. I photocopied it. I scanned it to myself. Here are the files. I'm returning it to your hands. And... He immediately got upset and he said, I'm going to report you to this chief financial officer and to, to the procurement guy, who was Lester Peters, which he did. I found that and I said to him, look, I have to go to National Treasury now because it was a Tuesday morning. We normally had a weekly meeting with them. And I said, I'll be going to the offices. Um, when we come back, let's discuss because I said, look, 
and I'll explain. So I handed him the files. I was already on my way and I drove with one of my colleagues, Lindsay. And he said to me, um, then I got this phone call from Pumez and she said to me, do not attend National Treasury today. So I said, well, I'm already halfway to Pretoria and um, I need to attend there because I need to discuss with them on the funding. And she said to me, she will come. I mustn't attend. And I must come back to the office and wait for her. So I said, well, I don't have my car. I'm driving with Lindsay. Um, I will go to Pretoria and I'll wait for you. So I went there. I told Lindsay what happened. Lindsay just said to me, look, she probably just will slap you over the knuckles, but wait in the car or in a coffee shop and she'll go to the meeting. Lindsay went to the meeting. I went to a nearby Wimpy and I waited there. When Lindsay came out to the meeting, she said Pumeza did come to the meeting, but nothing was mentioned about funding to, to National Treasury, which Treasury should have known, but nothing was mentioned. We got in the car and we chatted and she said, oh no, Pumeza didn't say anything. And when I got to the office, I went to Pumeza's office, you see, and she said, no, she's not ready for me. So I came back to my office and I continued with my day's work and at, and I get this call at about five to four that they want to see me. So I go to her office at four o'clock. Four o'clock, she's sitting in her office with a person I don't know. He's introduced to me as the new head of HR because in the time they had now suspended Tuli Mshe in May already. And they have one document in front of them and she says, you are suspended with immediate effect. And she pushes this document across to me and says, I'm sign it. So I said to Pumeza, can we discuss what happened today? I said, I took that file and I need to discuss with you what happened. And she said, no, don't discuss anything with me. You are immediately suspended. We will investigate, but you should not have taken that file. And I said, well, it was within my rights because I'll be working with BNP. And besides, it's a funding deal. And that's my responsibility um, as group treasurer. And she just said, well, sign the deal. So I said, uh, sign this form. And I said, well, what is my recourse? And she said, well, you can go to CCMA, but you cannot have any legal representation from SAA. So I signed the form. I was in shock when I signed it. And then I took it out. And literally, I held that form against my chest. I was like, in a daze, what just happened? I had no chance to speak. I had no chance to defend myself. She didn't even ask the right questions. She's judging me just on a file that um, I was not privy to have seen, according to her. And I walked down to my office, and then I thought, let me go to Lindsay to tell her, because Lindsay and I had been talking in the car, driving to and from Pretoria in the morning. So I showed Lindsay the letter. Lindsay at the time gave me a big hug, and that's when I first started tearing up. And I said to Lindsay, you know, at my car's at the, um, the, um, at the service place, and normally I would phone them to fetch me, but I said, please, can you just take me? I need to get out of the building because the letter also stated I needed to leave my laptop, my keys, everything. So she said, okay, she'll meet me in the car park. So I, I went back to my office. I picked up my handbag. I um, locked my office and I left uh, and I said to Lindsay, I'll give her my keys. And I just said goodbye to my staff. Normally I'm the last to leave. That day I left just after four, must have been like quarter to four. Met with Lindsay and we got into the car. She was driving me to Edenvale where I could pick my car. 
it wasn't even 15 minutes after we left the office. We're almost in Edenvale. My, my phone rings. It's an unknown number. I pick it up, and this person says, my name is Sibel Skitty. I heard your job is in jeopardy. Can we talk? I knew of Sibel Skitty because he's a journalist that writes in the Sunday Times. And I just said to him, how do you know my name? And how do you know my number? I said, I'm sorry, I cannot speak to you. And I put the phone down. So by then I was distraught thinking, how do journalists know? I'm the only person and now Lindsay knows, no one else, you know, except for another lady that I met in the lift. And so I um, get to my car, I drive home, I'm in a state, I phone my husband, I tell my daughters and the rest now is what do I do? So the reaction for me the following morning was, what do I do? I was so tempted. All I wanted to do was stay in bed, not get up, not uh, do anything. I wanted to just curl up and cry and think, what the hell happened to me? Um, all I was trying to do was save this organization. I was trying to stop something that was untoward, that was irregular, that was against our policies and our procedures. And all these thoughts kept going through my mind. But I got up and my, um, literally I told myself, you know, like in that movie Kill Bill where she says, move your toes. I was saying, get up, Cynthia, go to the bathroom, go and shower, get dressed for gym, go to gym. I, I literally had to do the self-talk. And I went through my day that way, just saying, do the next step, then the next step. I wasn't thinking beyond the next step. And once I finished at gym, I dressed in casual clothes and I thought, what do I do now? And I um, then phoned Outa and they said to me, well, we, we go and see Weber Wenzel. We've already phoned them. We told them we'll make arrangements for you to see them. I immediately spent time the first morning with Weber Wenzel. I worked with their pro bono department. We were going to try and stop the deal because I said, is it possible? For the next two weeks, we worked on the deal. I gave my full affidavit to Weber Wenzel and we managed to interdict. In between, Weber uh, Wenzel had written the first letter of demand to, to SA. They ignored it. They then wrote a second letter saying that they need to stop the BNP deal. They ignored it. Then the third letter from Weber Wenzel said, we are going to interdict. And they interdicted on the 21st. Um, the evening, late evening on the 21st, only then did SAA state that they have withdrawn, um, they cancelled the agreement with BNP and that they haven't paid them anything. So for me, that was a great relief that no money had been lost from SAA and that um, the deal was stopped. However, oh, uh, this was now the 21st of May. Come the end of July, I get a call from SAA to please come and collect my charges. I get five charges from SAA with a one-pager but no evidence. And they said, I must come back in August for the evidence. So I go back in August and I get two thick files. I take them straight away to Weber Wenzel. They've assigned me a labor lawyer who then went through the case and then said, okay, your disciplinary hearing is on the 5th of August. Let us go and we'll see 
if we can postpone it. His intention initially was postpone it, but he said, let's just go and let's see what their lawyers have to say. We get to SAA's office. SAA's lawyers there, but none of the SAA representatives are there. Bez is not there. She's not doing anything about it. So my lawyer then says, look, if there's no SAA representative, we cannot go ahead. I'm going to take this to the Labour Court. And so he takes it to the Labour Court. We meet at the, on the 22nd at the Labour Court. And the move is to take my case to the CCMA. Um, we end up at the CCMA. Every month, dates were set for the CCMA. But every time we got to the CCMA, the SA lawyers were there, but not a representative from SA. So they just moved it out August, September, to October, to November, December, early December, then early January, then February. In March, my lawyer said to me, Cynthia, you're already 59 years old. Why don't we just take this up and see if we can settle, um, you know, and ask for an early retirement because you'll be 60. So I said, well, I need to think about it. But I was dead against it. And I wrote him a letter saying, look, I'd prefer to go through my case completely till the end because I, my case has merit. Um, I spoke to my husband and my children and they said, mom, you know, just end it. It's taking so much of your time and effort and this your whole energy is focused yeah, on that. Yeah. So then I negotiated with the lawyer. I said, okay, then I'll take a settlement, but I want it until I'm 63 years old, which meant roughly about four and a half years. And he said, um, he said to me, he doesn't think they'll take it. Anyway, the end result was that SAA agreed only on a six month. So from the March, um, the uh, working on the separation agreement went back from March, April into May. SA only signed it on the 4th of May, but they backdated it to the 31st of, of, um, of March. And then they only still only paid me six months salary. So it was, yeah. Anyway, we with that, I was totally frustrated with the way the process went with the lawyers, with SAA. Um, I was unhappy that um, my team that I managed at SAA, not one of them ever asked me if I was okay or just contacted me. They just stayed quiet. Um, the two people that stayed in contact with me was my, my one colleague, Lindsay Olitsky. Um, we stayed in contact continuously. And there was another lady who worked in a totally different department. But because I once helped her, she remained um, always concerned. Are you okay? And, um, you know, her name was Lindy. And she, she would always contact me. But out of the entire staff, no one, you know. So you feel like you're this pariah. You're this outcast. You did this bad deed. And you have leprosy. People can't even touch you or speak to you. So it was really a bad thing. And and I just had this feeling of hatred and and um, irritation, frustration. And at the same time, I was beating myself up, just saying, maybe I should have kept quiet. Maybe I should have. And with all these questions going in my mind, I came to the same conclusion that I still did the right thing. You know, but then it, the self-doubt goes in the cycles. You are so well qualified. You have an excellent track record. What you did at SA Airways speaks volumes about your own ethics, your loyalty, everything else, your competence. But could you find work when you started looking for work? Ilsa, that was the challenge. So I, I was so naive. I was really confident that I will send my CV out and I will get a job. So when I came back, which was 2017, the end of the year, 
I sent out my CV. I first thought, which type of companies do I want to work for? So I thought I'll go back to the banks because that's where my expertise lies in banking and treasury. And so I sent it out to all the banks. I received not a single reply. I then thought, let me try the universities and I'll do admin work I, I, or I'll go into research department. I applied to Gibbs. I applied to UNISA even. I applied to Wits Business School and Wits University itself, thinking, okay, I could either do research in the back room. <laughs> I could, um, if they wanted me to lecture on business, I could do that. So I put my CV forward. I had nothing. And that's when I realized, Cynthia, you're going nowhere. Because even if the universities would normally take someone in that they could use for skills, especially if you have the business skills, you combine it with um, your academic side, it, it's better for, for students because they, they can, you, can, you can give stories and actually relate true life stories to that. And I heard nothing. And then I thought, what am I going to do now? And that's why uh, that was 2017. So 2018 was just studying. It was the yoga. It was the, the, the Institute of Directors. And I did all those qualifications for 2018. And I started teaching immediately because um, I'd already done two years of studying prior to yoga. And but before you take your final qualification, you need to start teaching. So I already started teaching. And then I thought, what do I do now? And the banks haven't responded. The universities haven't responded. Do I want to go back into the corporate world? I told myself, no. Do I want to do something for myself? And I thought, yes, I'll rather look at starting my own company and, and working that way. So um, immediately I was starting with the, the teaching of the yoga. So that kept me going. I also immediately volunteered. From 2017 was one of the first things I did with the whole saga with SA, I went to volunteer at the Johannesburg Children's Home, teaching the children yoga there. That was my first task. I was already volunteering at our church. I worked with an organization called Service in Motion. So that kept me going, just volunteering my time. Come the end of 2018, about October, I got this call from the Zondra Commission who asked me to please come and meet with them. And I went to meet with them in October, and that's where I met most of the investigators who worked on my case. And they asked me to testify, which I was prepared to do. So that took a lot of time. Um, October, November, December, I was supposed to, to testify in February 2019. But because um, Agritzi came on in January, threw everything out, um, their schedule, and they put me down for June that year. So June, I testified. In fact, they had the whole SAA um, team testifying. So I stayed. So I was at Zondo almost every day, um, listening to the other people's testimony after giving my own. And um, it was then when I, um, I had the strong feeling then, yet yeah, the time is now to do something about the whistleblowers. Because I had in the back of my mind all the time, but I didn't engage anyone. I did try to reach out to Masilo. I didn't know Masilo's number to Bianca Goodson at the time, to Suzanne Daniels, because they were all in the media. Um, but um, I didn't have their numbers and journalists wouldn't give their numbers, which was also right. Um, but I wanted to do it from a more altruistic uh, perspective. So I thought, okay, the time's probably not right. I even reached out to the SABC 8 at the time um, after the SABC had fired those eight journalists. So I didn't do anything at that time. But after my testimony in at the Zondo, suddenly um, 
people started contacting me and I was uh, able to get contact numbers. And that's where I set up my WhatsApp group. So I called it a whistleblower WhatsApp group where I physically met with most of the whistleblowers to date. We, we shared our stories. We found it was good to share your story with another whistleblower. In itself, it was already healing. And then I set up this WhatsApp group so the others could link and meet on their own or share their stories or just share frustration or where they're at. Like some would post they needed lawyers and we'd all go and look out and see if we could find lawyers for them or if they just wanted help with something. Or So we would we were just finding ways how we could help one another. And I think that worked out quite a good support mechanism because you feel alone. You asked earlier on how do you feel as a whistleblower, you literally feel like an outcast. You feel that you're alone on this journey. There is no one. Yes, you've got your family, your husband, your children. You've got that family support, which is really great. But there's times when you know you are just walking this path alone and who is with you. My personal faith, I must say, being Catholic and just being strong in my own personal faith, is that I... When I first decided to whistleblow, I went to pray about it. I was actually asking God, am I doing the right thing? And if I do this, will you carry me? And indeed, he did carry me. Um, it reminds me of the story about the footsteps, you know, um, if you've ever come um, across that, where Jesus carried you. And he definitely did carry me in those times. And I can say it with total conviction and belief that he did carry me in those um, th that time. And the other part was my yoga kept my physical strength. And, um, and then my family was my backbone. And they that three parts were the ones that carried me. When I spoke to most of the whistleblowers, those that had family support were always the stronger ones. But there were some of us who didn't have the family support. There's some of us that lost their spouses because of it. Some of them were about to lose their children because of it. Some of us lost our homes um, because we had no job. We had nothing to prove we've got future income. Some of us couldn't put our children through to school anymore. You know, it, it becomes so devastating. And the worst is when you're just alone in this bubble and you, you're asking yourself, where's my next cent going to come from? How am I going to earn? I've sent out so many CVs, nothing is coming out. When you speak to Suzanne, she tells a story of how many CVs she sent out. And, um, and to me, it's amazing that she kept up because I just gave up after the banks. And the, I just said, you know what, if you don't want me, I, I'm not going to seek further. I'm going to find other avenues of earning. And so um, you are really left to your own devices. With the whistleblowing group, I even sought to go to the banks. I physically wrote to the banks letters to each of the CEOs requesting them to say, please, we are a group of whistleblowers. We all suffered this fate. If we could work, we would pay our loans back. Unfortunately, we can't. Please, can you find it? I asked them. We called it the forgiveness of debt, where they could please just put a hold on our debt, right off our debt. That was the request I put to every single bank. Only Standard Bank came back to me, none of the others. Standard Bank was willing to set up a meeting with myself and one of the other whistleblowers. We had the meeting via Zoom, and they still said to us, they can't write our debt. What they can do is maybe stop the interest 
and give us a longer payment plan. I wrote back to say thank you for at least considering that, but I don't think it was good enough. I said, we are unique because we stood up. I said, there are so many other people who saw fraud happening around them, but didn't stand up. Please, and I begged, I literally begged. I said to them, I'm asking you to give me a job then. Just give me a job. I will pay it off and I'll even pay off the others, you know, if you just give me a job. They ignored that. They said, I'm a supply on the online system like everybody else. And I just laughed at that because already at my age, um, they wouldn't be employing me. So what you're saying is that the same banks who accommodated a lot of um, illegal activities on accounts, we know that things happened that shouldn't have happened, that money coming into bank accounts weren't cross-checked, that money leaving the country wasn't really regulated as it should be. The same banks who basically actively participated or aided and abetted some people with state capture, involved and implicated in state capture, wouldn't find it in their hearts to find some sort of solution for your problem. And that's exactly true. On top of that is these banks, do you know, when I was in my treasury position, I dealt with each one of them. I dealt with APSA, with FNB, with Standard Bank. We took our loans from them. They earned from us. Standard Bank was our main account holder. Nedbank was one of our major funders. So they were all part of it. They knew me as Cynthia Stimple. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't a faceless person. And none of them, even after all this came to light, none of them contacted me. I felt the banks could have contacted me. They own, in fact, one bank did contact me, which was Standard Chartered. Um, they called me and said, can we discuss what happened with the funding? And I, um, I, I, um, we did it via phone call and I explained the background. Immediately, Standard Chartered wrote to um, uh, to SAA and withdrew their loans because they realized they're not going to be part of this and they withdrew their loans. Um, a month or two later, Citibank withdrew their loans, but Citibank never spoke to me. But our four major banks, South African banks, they didn't once contact me. They could have, you know, I was I was protecting their interest if they, you know, if they, they if they saw it in that light, but they didn't even see it. So yes, so for the banks, I I'm after reading all the open secrets um, documentation and research on on the banks, I really have um, no qualms now with the banks. Um, I every time they write to me for something, I write back, and I've told all the whistleblowers to please keep writing to the banks and continue writing that they must write of your debt. Continue doing it because it's like water, a drop at a time, but the drop is going to make a difference in be it concrete or wood. And I said, just continue writing as regular as possible. Keep in contact because you don't have the bank to start charging you and, and, and saying that you, you, you just remain incognito. Write and say, this is my situation. I can't find. I would pay if I had a job, but I'm requesting. So that's what we're all doing. We're all sending these letters and hope it will have an impact. Okay, this brings me to a next point that I've discussed with Ethel Williams and Bianca Goodson as well. We need to start looking at the role private companies played in state capture. Do you agree? I agree totally. The first thing I learned when I studied risk management is that fraud never happens in isolation. 
it happens with collusion. And collusion meaning that there are many facets. There's, it's never one person. One person will, I'll steal this glass and I'll walk away with that. But if I'm going to be stealing money, where that goes authorization processes, it's collusion. There has to be many people down the road to approve it. So the banks played a huge role. All those um, accounting firms like KPMG, Deloitte, uh, PwC, Ernst & Young played a huge role. Advisory companies like your Bain, um, McKinsey's, Regiments, Trillion, for instance, mm. they came as advisory, but the goal was to steal money from the state-owned companies. When you hear that, you think, I mean, what did they think we were? And they got away with it. For me, the pain I felt is they got away with it. And who were the people in the positions? You asked me a, a question earlier on what made me do it. I recall saying to my family, because I had met with my family at the time, and said to them, I cannot call myself a group treasurer. I am not worth my salt if I allow this to happen on my watch. I said, now that I'm aware what's happening, I need to do something about it. And I need to stop it before this money leaves the organization. And that was my goal. And that's what was my motivation to do it. So I acted and I didn't wait for the money first to be paid and then speak. You know, I, I did it right up front. Again, the enablers are there, and it's how are we going to hold those enablers accountable? So we need civil organizations like Outer, like Open Secrets, like Corruption Watch, just to all stand together and keep bringing that to the fore. Cynthia, you recently started an organization called Citizens of Conscience. It is to support whistleblowers. Please tell us a bit more about that and the reasoning behind it. Initially, I started off with just a WhatsApp group, which we started in 2019. I met with each one of them physically and subsequent meetings. So I didn't only meet once. I met them a couple of times. And once we called a, a, a group meeting where we all met. And then with COVID, it was a bit more difficult to meet. But during COVID, I felt was the time to actually launch, uh, not launch the company, but to register it. I felt I wanted a title that would depict what was common to each one of us. It was because of our own conscience. We felt we needed to do something. It was that conviction that made me choose that name. So what is our purpose? Our purpose is really to help whistleblowers. The intention is not to reinvent the wheel. So it's not going to be a mechanism where um, to replace uh, like a whistleblowing hotline. It's not going to be lawyers because we don't have the skill. Uh, the intention is to find all the facets around the support of a whistleblower and to put that structure in place. So the first part is looking at how do we get legal support? And I embarked on many discussions with various lawyers to see if they're willing to support pro bono. And they all said, no, they can't do it. Um, so without funding. So it means the next area to look at is how do I get funding so that I can pay the lawyers for the whistleblowers? And I spoke to also many people and um, 
eventually we've got a few people interested now, which makes it great to set up a whistleblowing fund. I'm currently in that research. I'm doing it right now. Um, and it will be finalized soon and we'll be start sending out the proposal. The intention is to approach companies, banks, CEOs. My, my thinking is all the CEOs because they have, in their role as CEO, they have a mandate to not have corruption within the organization, to prevent it, to uphold the values of their own organization and to assure that each of their staff are astute and to protect their own reputation and the reputation of the organization. So I want to use that mechanism that if they donate on an annual basis funds to this whistleblowing fund, because we need to ensure that this fund is an ongoing thing, it will go towards whistleblowers. So if there's a whistleblowing in their organization, they have to support them. You know, they can't throw them aside like they've been doing. So that's the whistleblowing fund from a financial perspective. This, the research I've done to date was what's happening in the US, what's happening in the UK, the Australia, the New Zealand, um, Uganda, Nigeria, and even um, the Dutch. So the US have the False Claims Act that you, if, if you, you can report, and if it's false, you will be charged for perjury. Um, but if it's truthful and they can take it forward and save money, that money is a percentage the whistleblower gets. And many that goes with the Securities Exchange Commission, many people have been paid out already and they got paid huge sums. They get paid between 15 to 30% of whatever funds they had saved. So for instance, in my case, I'd saved 256 million. If we had something similar, at least I would have got a percentage of that, which would have set me up. I could have purchased my yoga retreat center, you know, and, and just run my own business type of thing, which now I'm, I'm literally sort of hand to mouth type focus at the moment. But um, the other thing is, um, so I've done all that research that's happening, and that's what I'm going to put forward in my proposal and make recommendations what we can have as unique in South Africa. Let's wrap up um, talking about your organization. How can the public get involved? Okay, so what I'd like them, I would like corporates and banks to get involved, so all corporate CEOs to help from a funding perspective. I would like the medical aid companies like Discovery, Bonita, um, and all the other Unity Health, all medical aid companies to assist whistleblowers from a trauma counseling, social worker, um, psychological, psychiatric assistance in that light, because those costs, we all end up with no medical aid, and those costs would help. And so finding a mechanism to help with the, that side of it. I would like organizations to start earmarking positions for whistleblowers to come back to irrespective of the age, find their niche where the experience is and employ them. Because as long as we are unemployed, we lose our dignity. And when you lose your dignity, you slowly start giving up. And that's what we don't want to do. Um, Everyone tells us we're brave. Everyone tells us we're courageous, but nobody helps us to, to support us for, you know, and say, we stand by you and we'll ensure that you can either earn or do something physically, etc. And that's where we lack. The other thing is that I would like society as a whole to start viewing whistleblowers in a positive manner. 
I remember being on a chat group um, where someone was literally criticizing whistleblowers, saying they are snitches, they are uh, telltales. Literally, I was astounded when I saw this and I responded and I said, um, whatever your information is, you've got the wrong side, end of the stick. And I wrote exactly what whistleblowers go through and the sacrifices they make. And I stated that there's a small percentage of people who stand up for the right. How many will rather follow and keep quiet for the wrong than stand up for the right? So, yes, so that type of perception needs to change and um, from a societal perspective. And then what I'd like to engage is all um, existing civil societies. I would like to collaborate, our organization to collaborate with them. So if a whistleblower comes um, and maybe comes to Outer, Outer will obviously go through the phases of, of, of checking the client, look, listen to the story, but then I would like them to bring them to us to how else we can support them. If I can find the right let's say, psychiatrist, psychologist, or company that can support that, and then say, here's the whistle, here's the funding perspective that can help, and it, and then the, the outer takes care of the rest of it. So it's working in that me mechanism that we have some collaboration. And it, I believe it can happen if we all work together, because we all have now seen the repercussions on our country. The state capture didn't happen in one year. It happened over a decade. And it probably started years before, but because we didn't see it as big as it's become, because this web has gone wide and deep and 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 so integrated into society that people don't even see they're doing something wrong. And it's to get that ethical thinking back. The other action I'm I'm concerned about and would like to bring in is a training perspective. So we may have ethics departments in our organizations and we may have um, uh, forensics, et cetera, but it's bringing that training right from school in our homes, all our parents teach us the right values. I don't think there's any parent that would teach their child to do the wrong thing. And then you go out in the school and bullying happens and something happens as a child sees a different value. And when they get into the corporate world, they see even different value because people are constantly lying or hiding their mistakes or pushing or bullying others. And it's that type of culture we need to start eradicating. And so how can we make sure that once we've trained young people that they're so firm in those values, that those values are espoused throughout their lives and that the bullies immediately must be held to task um, and accountability that those in 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 boardrooms in in uh, bullying CEOs or domineering or autocratic type characters that they immediately be held accountable that there's enough people to say this is not the way we want to operate and then we can see the change in South Africa so that's what I foresee for our organization. I want to end off with two last questions. Firstly, around advice you can give whistleblowers with everything you've learned. And then also a final thought on the laws we need around whistleblowing. Because we've, we've got laws about internal whistleblowing, if I'm correct. But there's nothing, there's, there's no national law about the protection, about witness protection, about things like that. Exactly. So I'll start with uh, the first question on what advice would I give to whistleblowers? I know it is hard for whistleblowers and to encourage whistleblowers right now would be asking them to put their entire life, their family at risk. 
But the question I want to put to whistleblowers is that do the right thing. I know it's a cost. And I know the repercussions because I've suffered it and so have many others that I'm in touch with it. But if we love this country and we want to produce a better South Africa for our children and for our grandchildren and their children, it's up to each one of us as South Africans to do what we are supposed to do as citizens. So I would encourage active citizenry. You don't even need to whistleblow. What we need is your voice. When you see things are wrong, write about it. Put it on Twitter. Put it on Facebook. Put it on LinkedIn. Put it on any social media. Just put it out there because the more people that do it, you cannot be individually targeted. That's what I've learned is that if I stand alone, I stand out my face if someone's pointing a gun at me, it's easy because it's that one person standing out. But if we stand up as a crowd, they can't do anything. And so I'm appealing to all South Africans. It's our country. And we need to now take this constitution and make it work for us. The, the opening sentence in our constitution says, we the people. That immediately we need to take that I am a South African citizen. What the politicians are doing now is segregating us. They're dividing us by race. They're dividing us by creed and color and culture. But yet when we ki kids are playing on the ground, they don't see it. In the workplace, I don't see it. When I'm working with my fellow colleagues, we see them as mothers, as fathers, as as sisters or brothers, because we all suffer the same challenges. So I'm just appealing that stand up as South Africans, because we can make a better South Africa if we do it together. Regarding the Protected Disclosures Act, right now it's been designed as a workplace document that each organization has a protected um document that for, for whistleblowers. But what I've discovered, each company interprets it differently. So if they interpreted it differently, how is everyone going to act? For instance, if you take my case, for instance, my company is a said I didn't whistleblow. They ignored it completely and utterly irrespective of all the evidence that was there. The very evidence that I put forward was the very evidence that was used to get Pumeza Nahansi out and to get Musatwane out um, when they were acting CEO and acting CFO. There were other charges, but none of those charges stuck. It was mine because there were true evidence. So how could I not be a whistleblower? The very evidence was used for Dudu Mayeni. So those evidence played a role, yet the company interprets it differently. Many others go the Labor Relations Act. So from a national perspective, we need to change that legislation. I believe that the Protected Disclosures Act should not reside under the Labor Relations Act. It should reside under the Department of Justice. It does read intersections into the Constitution. The Companies Act even has a clause that reflects about whistleblowers. So the whistleblowers should go to every other act and it should reside primarily under Department of Justice. Then in there, we should build in true protection. 
protection from occupational detriment, which is your work, but it should also be detriment from losing your livelihood, that there must be an opportunity for you to work or find meaningful work. And if you can't, then the country or company should reward you or compensate you. The U.S. has a compensation system. The Nigerians, as much as we may think Nigeria is not on top of things, their uh, whistleblowing legislation is even better than ours. That if, for instance, a whistleblower's case has been found that it has merit, that whistleblower is paid by that company for life until retirement. So they will get their salary with increases until they retire and they do not have to come back into the company. So that person can go start their own business and make sure that they are financially secure because they got getting this income. We haven't even looked at that because we haven't even touched the surface yet. So yes, a lot of legislation needs to be changed. When I chatted to Dave Lewis on the PDA, because they were involved with it from Corruption Watch at the time, 2000 was the first PDA written. 2007 was the amendment. That's how long it took. So it's actually an ineffective document. And therefore, we need to get people who have the expertise to write legislation, to already work on that. And once they've done it, to put it through to Parliament. Because if we go the route we go with other legislation, it takes too long. And especially in the light that we've seen how deep the corruption is, even now in our judicial system. It's in every layer of our parliamentary, our local councils, into our regional councils. It's all over in, in our political field. It's even in the private sectors. And we need to stop that. And the only way is to have the proper legislation that rewards whistleblowers because they take personal risk for that. And I know there's some people saying that if you do the right thing, why should you get compensated? Why should you get a reward? But nobody understands the repercussions you go through in many ways. It's that mental health, the physical health, the psychological health, the financial health, everything is you knocked on from all sides. And that needs to really be looked at. I would recommend that we get Department of Justice, Department of Labor, those people who have the expertise to write legislation, to work closely with them, work with the whistleblowers to get our stories and start working on those legislation to change it as soon as possible. I think it can be done within six months to a year and not wait for six years before we have a change in legislation. One could also ask the counter question to the cynics asking why should you be compensated? One should also ask why should a whistleblower be punished uh, for doing an ethical thing and for doing the right thing? Cynthia Stimple, it was an absolute pleasure and honor to speak to you. Thank you for what you've done for the country. And thank you for what you are setting out to do for future whist whistleblowers. And uh, I wish every South African would support you. Thank you so much, Ilsa, and it is a great honor for me to be on your platform today. Today's guest in the Outta podcast was Cynthia Stimple, former SA Airways treasurer. Read Cynthia's full story in her newly published book, Hijackers on Board. 
It's published by Tafelberg and available from your nearest bookstore. It is also available as an e-book. I'm Ilse Salzfiddle and this podcast was proudly brought to you by Outta, the organization undoing tax abuse. If you like Outta's work, please join them today in their fight for a better South Africa for all. Visit their website at www.outta.co.za. You can support Outta's work with a monthly contribution and you decide how much you can afford. Music